0: Hey guys, today I'm here with my friend Mandy Capehart. Um, I met her on Twitter a while back um, in the Christian spaces um, and uh, shes uh, I've had a couple sessions with her and she's really helped me and uh, I follow her email newsletters and they're always great. Uh, so I always appreciate her content. Uh, Mandy, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit more about what you do?
1: Sure. Thanks, Kendall. And I'm so excited to be here with you. You know, I love podcasting because I too am a podcast host of Restorative Grief with Mandy Capehart. It's a weekly show that goes back and forth between interviews and essays of my own work and grief and um, whole self care. And I work one-on-one with people. I'm also a grief coach and um, published author and public speaker and everything I do revolves around trying to create holistic, whole self pathways into healing, whether that's from a primarily cognitive approach for people who live in that space, primarily or primarily spiritual approach, people who start and live in that space, um, or even people who start in the physical. So that's really what I spend my days doing on top of all the other, you know, parenting and soccer coaching mm-hmm. and <laughs> mm-hmm. marketing and things like that.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I mean, I just love obviously that, you know, your focus is on grief because really that's so, I mean, obviously everyone goes through it and that's so at the core of um, of people's issues and stuff that they need to work through. And so, and I don't think there's a lot of people that just really focus specifically on grief and that takes someone very brave and empathetic and um, you're all that. So I appreciate you.
1: Thank you. I'm excited to chat today.
0: Yeah. Um, so you kind of want to get into uh, just what we're what we're talking about today?
1: Sure, I can totally introduce it. So we are looking at grief from a holistic perspective, meaning rather than addressing the fact that okay, now we're grieving and that's a really emotionally driven process, we're exploring how it also affects us cognitively, spiritually, and physically. So where does grief live in our thoughts? in our emotions, in our bodies, and in our spirits. Or uh, in my work, the way we look at spirits or spirituality is really our connection to self, others, the world at large, and our understanding of a higher power.
0: Yeah, that's great. So where do you want to start?
1: (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Let's see. I mean, we could certainly walk through where people get derailed, doing their own Mm -hmm. grief work. Um, I know when I first started in this work, it was after about, let's see, my mom died in 2016, um, two years after my daughter was born in 2014. And prior to that, we'd had years of infertility and trying to get pregnant, Mm. um, mixed in with all of the other losses and deaths and moves and divorces in our family that we'd uh, grown up with. So when I decided to dramatically change my life in 2018, I was two years into the grieving process, and that was for me about when I started feeling really settled and really um, well. Settled is not really the right word. Um, I started feeling a little bit more in line with myself, recognizing mm. myself a little differently. Noticing things about who I was that had changed, but still knowing there's familiarity here, instead of feeling very untethered, as I did in the beginning seasons of my grief of losing my mom. And so, from 2018 to 2020, I started studying and doing a lot more um, reflection, self-reflection, but more education around grief work. And then in 2020, I started drafting my book right on the heels of the pandemic and the uh, school hmm. shutdown here. Good timing, in my state. <laughs> right? Well, and that was really the motivation because I was very aware when I turned on the news and saw, okay, the school district's shutting down for two or three weeks. I just had this gut instinct that said, no, no, we're shutting down for a a long, long time. Mm. And we're about to enter into this generational experience of grief that will go untended and unmarked if we're not intentional. So I didn't want to live in that world. I've, I'd been living in that world, uh, mostly alone for so long that I thought this is the chance to share my story and my experiences, what I've learned through study, what I've learned through personal application, but also to ask some really challenging questions and live in that space of discomfort that is tolerant of the discomfort for the sake of growth, right? What is this unto? And I wanted to teach other people to ask that question. Like we don't grieve for nothing. What is this unto? What are we here for um, and not in that global, why do we exist question, but in that grounded, what is the purpose? What can this be put toward? How do we integrate what we're experiencing and what we're learning into this sense of self that we are truly starting to develop? So 2020 gave me some practical opportunity with the book, with the Restorative Grief Project, um, and with my town having wildfires in the fall of 2020. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Uh so I had a lot of opportunity to put my practice where my my thoughts were and really find some alignment between what I had a vision for in my own grief work, what I thought I could bring to the table as a coach, but also as a business owner and podcaster and author and all the things, and what my experience was to find some alignment internally with the purpose of this work. And is this just a... Just making sure I wasn't saying, well, this is another career to survive a, a pandemic. And then when, quote, things become normal <laughs> again, then I will go back to, you know, teaching or finance or whatever, whichever path I was on. So the the question became, okay, but am I doing this with intention hmm. alignment or am I doing this to survive, right? Right.
0: So, That's so important as a, as a coach, healer. You know, psychology that those these type of healing things because if we're not being authentic and it's not coming from a place of uh, helping others and and also just like we're actually speaking our own truth rather than just reciting platitudes, then it's not gonna hit home and people are gonna feel that and it's it's not gonna be helpful to them.
1: Yeah, and that's a lot of what really motivated my practice in the first place. Out of losing my mom, I was. A worship leader, heavily involved in church, I've been—I've been a worship leader for 16 years. By the time I stepped down in 2018, including having just gone to worship school
0: <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and then stepping down, it's um, quite a change. It was well, and I think that that was a great transition for me to realize, oh, this no longer serves who I am. I'm not in a position. This is not the place I want to be speaking mm-hmm. from and leading from and influencing from. This is a um, former self, and that's okay. And that in itself was a grief event for me. But mm, the mm-hmm. ability to grieve well in the context of faith and in specifically church cultures and community was really painful because people are not equipped to comfort or not even comfort, but just to show up and attempt to not comfort.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> to
1: show up on behalf of without instruction or uh, distraction. Mm-hmm. I think that we as especially in American Western culture in the churches are so um, quick to say, well, I'm praying for you or here's a scripture that encouraged me, (laughs) or this Mm -hmm. is something that matters to me and never stop to ask what matters to you, sweet griever. Mm. Mm -hmm. Would it be useful if I were quiet and just here, would it be useful if I shared something that means something to me, a resource or a book or a scripture, or would it be better if I cleaned your house? Um, We're, you know, trained to serve constantly and we forget to turn that off and just exist. And so from my experience, it was really a great place to start training and reteaching people how to do this well. How do you support people without spiritually bypassing them? And this was in our community, we had lost my husband's best friend uh, at that time about six or eight years earlier, suddenly, and his wife and children are family to us. And so I remember mm. just watching her fade away mm. and not even from every, not from us, but from every other relationship for the major most part, she was really struggling. And she, um, it was so important to me that I just kept showing up and being present at, at, regardless of the church, regardless of what was, I thought perhaps required or expected of me. Um, and to this day, like we, just had breakfast the other day. She's one mm-hmm. of the most valuable people, but it was really beautiful for me to be able to say like, look, um, this that you're going through is not fair because mm-hmm. if the church is going to say that we show up and we serve and we love and we create community, then they need to actually know how to do that when right. things are complicated instead of just when they're simple and everybody's mm-hmm. healthy and happy and housed and fed. Um, that. Those margins are where we actually need to know how to be the church and how to function in a practical application of our faith. So, yeah, you uh, it's true. That is exactly where my practice has honestly been the most challenging is within church walls.
0: Yeah, I think that... um you know our our uh, natural tendency is to be like job's friends you know <laughs> you sure. know the, the problem is you you know or you know you're you're sinning or you know it's just a natural human thing to want to fix it and I'll, you know obviously like first we're like oh we have great intentions and a lot of times we do but but when you go deeper it's like oh man, I am not able to handle someone else's grief and sitting with that. It's uncomfortable for me, so I'm going to try to fix that so I don't have to uh, feel this. And you know, obviously, we know trying to to fix it um, actually I'll, most of the time makes it worse rather than sitting with them and being empathetic um, or, or, like you said, doing doing things for them um, and allowing them to to feel feel the grief and process it and not feel like um, an item to to be fixed and also to be rushed.
1: Yeah, I think the spiritual bypassing description is really well captured in that story, in that tale, uh, because they're clearly uncomfortable and upset and devastated on behalf of their friend, but also offended at what Mm -hmm. happened and how things could have shaken out for someone so you know, beloved by God that your life is so traumatized. It's this idea of, well, it's a false idea, this irrational thinking that we are designed and, and destined for comfort and that we mm. are um, set aside for adversity. When the truth is adversity does not discriminate. Mm. Anyone at any given time can experience great trauma and loss. And uh, unfortunately, as you see in that story, Faith tends to make us feel very set aside and isolated instead of giving us an understanding that is realistic and grounded so that we can pursue what holistic grief work might actually look for, look like for us and how we can integrate it before it's even needed. How do we create and cultivate these healthier mentalities about loss, about life, about privilege, about our very existence in relation to others? without spiritually bypassing the truth and the reality of what's happening.
0: Right, right. And I'm just trying to th- I'm thinking about my own uh life and and my relationship with grief. Um I, I think when I was young, I I used to cry myself to sleep like every night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I felt very alone. Um, and uh, there's almost uh it was funny I was reading something about Enneagram 4 and it's like um this this well, this subtype of 4s likes likes melancholy, I'm just like, I'm like, ouch. <laughs> it's like I, I I've been there. Um, and, and it's just like, it's almost like, um, I when I was younger, I didn't know how to grieve well. It was like I would, it was more like a a self pity thing, and also just like, no one understands me. Woe is me. But uh, in that, I like kept myself in this without actually feeling and moving through it, it's like I was getting stuck in that. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's, if you could speak into that, like how, how do you transform that into a more healthy um, relationship with grief?
1: I think that you have to start with recognizing that what you're experiencing is totally normal and understandable. Even that desire to be melancholic, to appreciate melancholy is a natural thing. And some of us mm-hmm. are predisposed to to that way of thinking, not because we're dysfunctional or something's wrong with us or um, we misunderstand what life is supposed to be about. Actually, I think we recognize more deeply that life is nuanced and Mm. there are going to be experiences. Every experience itself is going to be nuanced and have things that are both positive, that feel positive and things that feel more negative. And I think where... We start to transform that type of expression of loss is first by starting with awareness, just recognizing that it's happening, not trying to fix it or redirect it or analyze it, but just genuinely giving ourselves enough space to gain some sight, to see who we are and where we're at, and even like observe the context that we're existing within because otherwise we're going to lose the plot when we start trying to fix and correct and and adjust and learn new things we have to remember that we exist in a specific context. And so for like with children, it's very different, right? Their ability Mm -hmm. to address grief in a way that might be somatically intelligent or socially um, awkward but really freeing is limited by the fact that they're kids. They can't Mm -hmm. drive themselves into the woods for a walkabout. They can't jump on a phone and call someone internationally without permission, right? Like there's there's a lot of barriers. And so gaining some sight about where you start is super crucial and having patience with that sight, what you see (laughs) when Mm -hmm. you are grieving. Um, But really being from that spot, once you have some context and some sight about what you're experiencing, giving yourself permission to gain insight without judgment, without criticism, without shooting on ourselves. But by saying, well, I feel very melancholic today, but I would like to feel more lighthearted by tomorrow it's those shifting it's catching that uh shitting language and that distorted kind of irrational thought process on some things like i will feel melancholic forever is Mm -hmm. a fatalistic perspective Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. we can demonstratively show we could that it could be true but it's more often than not going to be true unless things end immediately Than our forever is much longer than we can understand right now. And so taking what we've accepted and recognizing, okay, there's insight here for me. What do I want? Who am I? What are my values? Where do I actually uh, want to end up after this grief work? Like this is the meat and uh, of grief work with me is, is recognizing like, where are we at? Where do we want to go? And then from there, gaining support to create some actionable items out of that insight. Because it's one thing to say, wow, I'm really melancholic. It's another to say, oh, I don't want to feel this way anymore. I would like to feel safer to say I am feeling very melancholic today, but I'm working on feeling some sunshine on my face to see if that changes internally how I feel uh, and then it's another to say, okay, now I'm going to make a plan to go outside and find some sunshine and put my face in it for five minutes without criticizing myself, without condemning how silly it might feel, without telling someone, I know it's weird, but you know, dismissing our own decisions about testing something new. It may be that feeling sunshine on your face is not the way that your melancholy is alleviated, but you won't know until you experiment. Mm-hmm. And from there, all of those experiments, all of that willingness – all of those moments of curiosity that we start learning new things about ourselves and practicing them, well, that's integrating healing into our daily lives. It's not going to be a destination that we aim for. It's a target that we're looking at. And as we grow and move, the target and where we aim moves with us. So- that's the long and short of how I would approach that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. You just hit me with, with it all. No, that was yeah, great.
1: You go back and re-listen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, two things that really stood out to me. One was um, identifying that you're feeling a certain way, but you're not that feeling. That's not who you are. And so that helps us right. um, take a step back and, and, and separate our essence with that feeling and so realizing that that's something that we're feeling that we need to feel that but it's not the core of who we are so it's not something that we're stuck in it's our identity forever and that's something that we can um yeah work through and uh it's it's not that it won't come up again but it doesn't have to be that strong and, and always just be we're stuck in this moment i guess well Um, it comes
1: up again as a familiar it's something that you recognize more quickly to say oh right i've been here before wow the context of my life when i was feeling that way was i was a kid and i was less empowered by my circumstances by my understanding of the world now as an adult i can see there were a lot of things i had going for me and there were a lot of things working against me it made sense that I felt that way a lot of the time. It makes sense that I struggle to understand where the support was when I needed it. Where's the support now that I need it? And shifting out of that younger self, which could have been yesterday, right? Younger self. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a, big fan of the framework of younger self versus like inner child because Mm. I am very childlike and my trauma happens all the time. (laughs) I experience (laughs) things and make decisions that I have to then say, okay, younger self, that was not maybe our best decision forward. (laughs) Um, But that's okay because we're readjusting again, our aim at the target. It's moving with us as our goals change, as our wants and our needs change, we're pivoting with it. And so to give yourself that grace to move differently is wisdom and it is maturity. We've got this idea that if I've ever been an integrous person, I must be integrous a hundred percent of the time, every moment going forward. Mm
0: -hmm. You
1: won't be like, I'll just disappoint you now. You will fail (laughs) tremendously. And the um, arrogance to say otherwise is just honestly for me, a red flag that that's not a teachable heart that's not a growth mindset person that's ready or interested or maybe maybe they're interested but they don't know how to approach themselves curiously and compassionately they're approaching Mm -hmm. through that lens of judgment and should language and um really dichotomous like you're either good or you're bad you are Mm -hmm. either like in or out and one of the ways that I have found that I can slip back into dichotomous thinking is kind of on the same lines of thinking like, "Oh, this is a bad, this is a bad way of approaching my grief or this is a good way of approaching my grief when the truth is, no, there are just ways. there's no good or bad. And I get to ask a question, "Is this helping me or is this hurting me?" Mm-hmm. Because we have a lot of people who will show up, especially in my practice, with coping mechanisms that the world would say, oh, that's really bad." you're drinking every night, that's really bad. And I'll say, well, is it helping you or is it hurting you? And if the greater good is, it's taking my stress down for now, okay, how do we reduce the harm? Mm -hmm. If you're drinking three beers a night, can we go down to one? Mm -hmm. Can we go to one with five minutes of meditation? So we reduce harm and we invite curiosity and we reinforce the fact like, yeah, you can make a choice. Wow, you must feel really embodied when you aren't drinking in your pain. It must feel really present. And that liquor helps numb it. Mm -hmm. I can understand and empathize with where you'd be instead of saying, wow, it's really bad that you're drinking so much. Like who is going to get the better response? Mm -hmm. Who's going to get the more helpful response?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think I really uh, reducing that um, shame language and uh, just like, Hey, you know, what, what can we do to improve and what, what is, what is healthy rather than I think that the word sin has really been hijacked and that it does invite a lot of shame. And so it's like, if we can think in terms of, of health that just Uh helps redirect and not that you are a bad person, but you know, maybe the way you're acting, isn't the most health health healthiest or helpful way for you. And so how can we reduce that slowly um, while giving ourselves um, that grace and, and that love um, through through a hard situation.
1: Right. I really shy away from the even the word sin 100% mm-hmm. when I'm doing this work because it has been used so poorly for behavior management and that is absolutely the last thing I want to do. Behavior mm-hmm. management has to be internal. It has to be. And if someone's making a choice that I think is wrong, who the hell am I to put myself in in front of them and point fingers and condemn when Trauma-informed work says, I recognize that you have experienced and survived so much, and my job is not to reactivate you or to bring something to the surface that distracts us from the purpose of working together. My job is to show up on your behalf, right there with you, alongside you, while you decide, what do you want to focus on? Because at any given moment, all of us are grieving different things. And mm-hmm. we can say that, well, oh, I'm grieving the loss of my mom and the loss of a job and the loss of freedom through the pandemic and loss of friends from COVID-19 and the loss of community through leaving my church and the loss of connection in my household because, wow, we're together all the time. And so we just don't want to like be intentional with each other all the time because we're constantly on top. Right. And so there's a lot of things we're grieving that have different levels of intensity and different impacts on our lives. If I were then to say, oh, by the way, all of your grieving against other people, like all of your frustration against someone else, that is a sin. And not attending church anymore, oh, that's a sin. Listen, that is for someone else's Hmm. time at the table. Like I Mm -hmm. don't even care. Not because I don't care, but because the relevance to someone's whole self finding integration here and now has nothing to do with their decision about how they feel of their faith practice after the fact, right? So if Mm -hmm. a faith practice is harming someone's grief work, I remove it from the conversation. If someone's grief process is helped by their faith and they're not spiritually bypassing themselves and they have a good connection to their faith where they feel really grounded, then a hundred percent will involve it. But most often, People who are grieving are also questioning their faith because they do Mm. not, we don't realize, we really don't talk a whole lot about secondary losses. So like my mom dying of cancer, I distinctly remember being at her bedside in hospice care and the nurses wouldn't come into the room. And if they did, they would be covered head to toe. And I wasn't. And I didn't mm. understand why I wasn't asked to do this if they're asked to do it. So part of me didn't take it seriously. And the other part of me didn't understand why they were treating her like um, someone who was highly infectious. And they said, well, she has this, in, the, she has this viral infection that can be uh, communicated through touch. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. I've been here holding my mom's hand and no one said anything to me. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. But then after the fact, after she died, that was the last time I got to interact with her before she died. And I remember kicking myself over and over saying, if I just laid hands on her and prayed, would she have lived? Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you the depth of pain my spiritual practice experienced and my my faith went through great loss and trauma in and of itself because not only, no, I can say without a doubt, it would not have like healed her instantly. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I would spend hours questioning if I believed that that was true because I had empirical evidence on both sides. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think we, we fail to recognize that our secondary losses, such as questioning our faith or loss of community, loss of people who we thought would be there and they aren't loss of our sense of self, because my identity was absolutely enrobed in my faith practice. And all of that had to get torn down before I mm. could even consider looking at faith or, addressing my grief. And and I go through a lot of that in my book too, um, just talking about how I got to a place where I could still approach any type of faith practice or expression of my f- beliefs. Um, but but the word sin is just so loaded and critical and it, it's intended to be divisive. It's a it's a unit, it's a tool of division. Mm-hmm. Um it quite literally is is someone saying, I'm separating you from mm. that which i deem to be worthy and what i believe to be unworthy and again it's another false dichotomy that invites us to be critical and harsh when what we need is compassion and understanding and softness to fall apart
0: mm-hmm. yeah it's really interesting thinking back to my own um life again um kind of when i had my awakening and then and then also being put in the hospital and put in a psych ward and put on meds and my life kind of falling apart. And then uh, after that, just really craving that experience with God, that high that I had, but feeling the opposite, feeling so disconnected and also just like, man, that experience was so powerful and also just like, it felt more real to what, what, to what life is. And so now all my boxes of what reality is are broken. And so um, grieving the loss of, my understanding of reality and and of religion and and also just yeah that co- that collapsing of, of 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 my life and and so sorry I don't want to like get in my soapbox here but mm-hmm. I guess what I'm what I'm thinking of is that it took me five years to be able to approach thinking about religion and God and and my upbringing and what did I think about that now and. and and going through this um, mentally, uh, I had to first deal with my emotions and, and stuff like that before I could even, even think about that stuff. So um, yeah, yeah, it does seem like that, you know, first there's, we have to deal with the, the, the emotions and the grief. Um, but then, like you said, there is a secondary, um, it does cause us to question um, our, our beliefs and, 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 and understanding of, 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 of our beliefs in, in Christianity or whatever. And so um, that's something that we also need to address and hold um, grace for people with.
1: I think the idea of holding our faith lightly is really, really important when it comes to grief work because the idea that our faith will carry us through anything is beautiful until the thing gets real big. It's beautiful until we realize the sermons we've listened to and the structure we've given to our lives is really dependent on our circumstances and our financial security, right? And this is Western, my experience in Western Christianity speaking here, but mm-hmm. the the way we have set ourselves up to fall is from such a higher platform because we do not understand how to be uncomfortable and how to grieve. Mm-hmm. We celebrate mm-hmm. life. Every single week, so highly and speak so strongly of the right kind of life—not just life itself, but the correctly lived right mm. life—that um, mm. we we've lost the plot of grace. But more than that, we've completely disassociated ourselves from a culture that comprehends honoring the death and dying process, honoring people who have passed, honoring people who are transitioning from this life into whatever comes next. We've become Mm -hmm. so obsessed with defining what comes next or defining what successful life looks like. We fail to see humanity for the fullness of what it is. And so I think for... For my purpose, the grief work that I love to do really shows up for people where I can point them back to themselves and say, if you're designed in God's image, and this is obviously for Mm faith-based coaching, but if you're designed in the image of God and you truly believe that, like you truly understand and believe and say that I am a reflection of the creativity of heaven, I am then given the opportunity to say, okay, so what does the creativity of heaven look like when you are flourishing? What do you look like fully alive? What do you want? And pointing clients towards value work and really asking, well, what are your values right now? Not your overarching values of I'm faithful, I'm kind, I'm principled, I'm consistent, whatever. And those are all four great values. But in this season, in this moment where you are grieving a great loss, where you are transitioning in your faith practices, where you are finding a new community, where you are feeling Really overwhelmed because all of a sudden your childhood stories, your younger self is asking for some attention and is getting some attention. And now you're learning what that thing is in your body that's been hurting. You recognize the roots in the trauma that you experienced. So, what are your values right now? Because they're not going to be the same that they were when you were twelve or ten or five. My values when I was five should be different. They had better be different than mm. when I was sixteen and where I'm where I am now, almost forty. My values have to evolve with me as a human being because change is constant. And believing otherwise, believing our identity is you know set and solid and permanent, is so uh, controlling. Mm -hmm. and fatalistic that it limits our ability to heal Mm -hmm. and to experience that fullness of the creativity of heaven. So Mm -hmm. that value work, so value work, I mean, if I was going to leave anybody with any tool, right, just because that's what I love to do, Mm -hmm. um, it's to look up value is to just do some value work. So meaning look up a whole list of core values and start pulling them apart. Like Sometimes you, maybe you make a list or maybe you make cards and you write all these different values that have mattered. And the ones that really, you read them and you just start to feel it in your, in your guts and your chest, your body responds. Like you feel whether it's a lightness or a tingling or like a, sometimes people feel really lightheaded when they find this value that truly resonates with where they're at. There's this sense of alignment that comes almost instantly that value, the one that really hits home, allows you to then experiment with what type of support would be really meaningful. So for me right now, my core value that I'm pursuing is fun. Does this, seem thing, does this thing seem fun to me? And what does fun actually mean? Well, for me, fun usually has to do with sports or being active or jumping off of something that most people would say, that's crazy town. Why would you do that? And I'll say, because it's fun. I want to jump mm-hmm. off more of them. Mm-hmm. Right? So those are the things that then I can say, well that's going to be something that actually feels rested, makes me feel rested. That's going to feel restorative, not because jumping off of a tree with a thing on my back is inherently restorative to everyone. That's not restful to a lot of people. But because of the character I uh, the character that I am, that's actually appropriate. Mm-hmm. But because of my character, where I'm at in life and what matters to me, what my values are, that allows me to then say, actually, zip lining is incredibly restorative as a grief tool for me. But I would never say that to someone like you, right? Because you don't necessarily have the same values that I have. My story is not going to become prescriptive for someone else's. My story can be reflective of how varied and expansive grief support can be. Because I'll tell you what, there is nothing for me that is more freeing than literally realizing I could plummet to my death if this cable snaps. Mm-hmm. But wow, that view is incredible. Mm-hmm. I feel so free, right? And so those are the that value work and deciding to be very honest, despite how chaotic or off the beaten path or out of line with scripture things might seem. I don't mean to say that last bit out of line of scripture as flippant. And so I just want to qualify what I'm saying there. We have allowed, in my experience, the scriptures to become so prescriptive around grieving and how to grieve and how to build a community that we have missed the opportunity to remain in our inherently insightful, wise, created selves. So I'm I don't know, when people tell me like, oh yeah, the Bible is my source of comfort. I'm like, that's awesome. Um, Specifically how? Because if you're just Mm -hmm. telling me because Jesus is so good, like totally, Um, specifically how? (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you, specifically how? Uh Like how Uh does this align with you? How does that statement reinforce your current value in a way that you're finding true rest? That Mm. you're truly saying, I am leaning in to what I need in a way that isn't just like me saying, Oh, I need to go spend $300. No, like, and do something that I want. Like you are truly finding rest and alignment, not because Jesus is faithful and gave you $500 and a check in the mail, um, because you're doing something that's accessible, right. To all people. So self-care and healing work, if it's truly restorative, it's going to be accessible, on the whole, which is why I'm very aware that ziplining is not like true self-care because that's something accessible to people with money to do it, right? And Mm -hmm. a body that can do that thing. And that's not everybody. But, um, okay, you can say that Jesus is my comfort, that's accessible to anybody that that wants to approach that. But what does that actually mean for you? Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, uh, um, Sorry, I I uh,
1: got a little uh, off topic there. (laughs) Ranty. (laughs)
0: that's fine that was great um i think underlying current in all this uh is maybe one of one of your strengths is um giving people the permission to um listen to themselves and um to yeah find find what what they need and what what what's healthy for them um i think one harmful thing that christianity sometimes teaches is to be um it's not only selfless. It's like it's like um, self-sacrificing to the point of like harming yourself. Um, I don't know if I'm saying this the best way. Sure, you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, uh, yeah and, and so it's like we're we're looking to what others need so much that we're we're harming ourselves and the, what we need, and then we're yeah, we're basically running ourselves out, and then and then we collapse basically because we we can't keep going because. Sure. We've ignored our needs for so long.
1: Well, I think that goes back again to this idea of, of course, put your oxygen mask on first, but Western church doesn't teach us that. Western church says you are being rewarded in the afterlife. You are storing up treasures in heaven. You are filling your mansion with jewels and wildest dreams. We've literally materialized And made material things in a heaven afterlife the priority. Whenever that was said to me, it was literally like buckets of jewels. I've never valued buckets of jewels, but for some reason that was the thing that people made me, (laughs) that that came to mind when people would say those things to me. And so uh, the selfless, um, skilled, unpaid labor that churches rely on is really difficult when you are grieving and this was part of my story too, because I was, mm. like I said, I was a worship leader, and I was a, I was involved in all right. the ministries, <laughs> all of them, um, because it does not make space for me to exist as a human who needs to be able to quit a job when I need mm. to, because there's a spiritual factor, right? I've over identified with my spirituality as part of who I am, therefore, the service that I pr- uh, that I provide is part of my identity. If I stop doing doing those things, stop providing that service, piece of my identity is going to fall apart. My sense of belonging in the community might be reliant upon my ability to serve said community. Then what? Then my support is removed. But did I even have support in the first place or was it predicated on the fact that I was right there in front of somebody and I was crying my eyes out? So that... It's a difficult place because in the faith context, I'm the person that says, let it fall, (laughs) whatever it is. Mm -hmm. If it's not serving, let it burn because Mm -hmm. you know what? Wildfires are restorative for the forest to find new growth. I am the person that burns it down just to see what rises from the ashes. At the same time, when it comes to self-care, if you are indulging and pursuing things that are not accessible holistically to someone in the middle of nowhere. And this is what I've always said about faith too. So here's my little extra soapbox about missionary work. Mm -hmm. You're either going to have lots of new listeners or people threatening me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If it is not something that is available to everyone everywhere in that moment, regardless of language, regardless of finance, regardless of access, then it's not actually coming from the Lord. I cannot in good faith ever believe that the reduction of the wholeness of the created world and what God has brought on this earth could be limited to Western thinking or Mm. English-speaking cultures. Mm -hmm. And to believe otherwise is so short-sighted. And to believe that I have figured it out to the point where I could go and teach it to other people. I'm sorry, I've got a very strong understanding of intuition and Holy Spirit telling me, yeah, there's wisdom that's bigger than my understanding. So how does that apply to grief? Um, Because the same thing is true with grief work. If we get prescriptive and we believe that we have it figured out, we have immediately failed. I can Mm -hmm. have a pathway forward that serves me, that worked really well for me, And my job is not to be someone's guru and teach them what's going to work for them. My job is to teach them how to ask the right questions, teach Mm. them how to think differently outside of the dichotomous framework that a lot of us in Western culture, regardless of whether we've been in the church or not, are positioned to believe. It's why we have two main political parties. It's why we say things are good or bad. It's why we you know, say school or homeschool. Those are the only options. Mm -hmm. Not true, right? So there's... So many places where we've created a false dichotomy and allowed our brains to really live in that space instead of becoming so curious that we don't have any answers by the end of the day, and that mm-hmm. that actually feels really freeing. I think I, yeah, I think I got off topic on your question, but
0: <laughs> the, the, that was great. Um, <laughs> to kind of go, you're just talking about dualistic thinking versus like oneness, and, and and that there's a mystery to it, and there's a unfolding and paradox and all that. Um, yeah. and that just allows her so much more freedom. Um, going back to what you said about, uh, um, missionaries, uh, the second episode I had was with my friend who was a missionary's kid for a long time in Africa and then grew, yeah. grew up to be a missionary in Africa mm-hmm. and how he came to the same realization. And, um, yeah, he, he, he's, he's moved on from that. Um, and obviously, you know, there's a lot of good things about missionary work, but, but I am agree- in agreement with you that, um, you know, everybody has, has that, um intuition and i would say you know the, the the holy spirit within within them and and that that knows what's best in their context um for them and so we can um uh we can bury that by saying hey we have the answers you don't and um that 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 can that's very harmful um yeah, yeah good
1: being able to restore someone's autonomy inside of grief work even outside of grief work means that we're teaching them to trust themselves that we're mm-hmm. allowing them to be considered trustworthy people instead of you know that calvinistic thinking that well no one is good everyone is bad everyone is garbage right. no one is trustworthy well if no one mm-hmm. is trustworthy then your words aren't trustworthy like what you're saying <laughs> that i'm like, it just it's it, a loop yeah it is and it when i um was young i remember hearing that thing and and just questioning it so quickly And then Mm -hmm. immediately putting it aside, and in the last few years, and maybe it's just because I've been more active on things like Twitter and other Mm -hmm. social media platforms that I'm seeing it a lot more, but it astounds me how we're so quick to protect the black and white, distorted thinking because it feels safe, when the reality is the first moment of grief, that is going to shatter, and it will be such a Mm -hmm. further fall from where you are to what you realize to be true after grief. If instead we could just decide now that learning about grief, gaining some grief literacy and understanding how we as human beings work, how the brain actually works, how it actually learns, um, based on all, you know, thousands of years of different types of research, as opposed to, well, we think this is true. So we're just going to go with it and stick with it for as long as it works. Um, Mm -hmm. That's fine. It just, it makes for a really strong learning curve when really long and steep learning curve, rather, Um, Mm. when we are faced with loss that just wrecks our whole sense of self.
0: Right. Um, I want to uh, talk or ask about how, you know, obviously it's good to um, feel into ourselves and, and what do we need and what's healthy, but obviously we're not just individuals. We're um, we're communities, we're relationships. And so yeah. how do we balance, you know, thinking about others and what's healthy for them and helpful? Cause you know, we're not always going to be able to meet our needs perfectly. Uh, you know, it's not a perfect world. So, um, yeah. H- how do you reconcile those things?
1: Meaning when you're grieving or when, others- yeah,
0: yeah. Or just, just any time, you know, just like, how do you balance, um, others needs versus your own
1: boundaries? There's a lot of people who don't know that they need boundaries until the uh, rubber meets the road and they realize, oh, God, I've never learned to drive this vehicle. (laughs) Um, Boundary work is so important to me to the degree that the other day a coworker said, I know you really like boundaries and I appreciate you setting that one. I'm going to go ahead and set this one for myself and you can follow through however you'd like. And I was just like, I don't even (laughs) care that our boundaries are different. I'm so in awe of being able to create a, a, an environment in my workplace that I can say I am very boundaryed. That doesn't mean I'm guarded. It doesn't mean I have walls up. It means I know where I'm willing to go and where I'm not. Uh, for example, I have a connection to a young person in my community who is unhoused right now. And former me would live in guilt knowing that I'm at my house right now and there's a futon in my office. Former me would do everything and give everything and compromise everything to make sure I was sacrificing unto the degree that I thought was appropriate for the um, well-being of that person, regardless of the harm it might've put me in. I love them to death, but I have roommates that used to do that and I would come home and someone new was living in our house and it made me so scared. And then I would shame myself for being afraid of someone. Um, And the reality was, no, actually your your roommate brought a stranger into your home that they also did not know out of Mm -hmm. this well-intentioned and beautiful sense of love and community. But the truth is we didn't know anything about them, right? Mm -hmm. So boundaries on the front end of that would look like if you come across someone who really needs support and you want to offer them housing, you need to make it as your roommate, as someone living in this house, I am not in agreement with bringing someone else in to sleep on our couch without meeting them ahead of time first, right? Or Mm -hmm. someone that we know is different. So the same thing with the gal that I know, my boundary ahead of time is if someone is in need, this is the dollar amount I'm prepared to pull out of my savings for this person. Um, These are the resources I have on hand that I'm willing to give. They can all go to one person. That's fine. I know where my boundaries are, not because I'm afraid Mm -hmm. of – of giving too much or being taken advantage of. I'm not. If I give something, I give something. It's meaningless to me because I, again, haven't waited on a materialistic afterlife with a bucket full of jewels that I'm worried about. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about how do I create a safe environment for myself and this person to have a a relationship that feels real. And Mm -hmm. if it's a taken advantage of situation, that's okay because my attachment isn't to the stuff. My value here isn't in, the aftermath it's in the honoring and dignity of a person and ensuring that they are valued and so i think that the boundary work we can do around grief and around supporting our community is really about recognizing well again what what is valuable to me how do i honor my own values and my own sense of independent but relational self that needs connection that needs to know uh, and contribute but also knows that my boundaries are just as valid, my needs are just as valid. That's the thing that I think we've gotten away from, at least in Western culture, is this idea that our values or our sense of self, our needs are just as important. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have people from church stages saying the opposite all the time. <laughs> the church is more important. Give your money here, mm-hmm. do this for the church, sacrifice this uh, because you're you know, worthless and or you're worthy. But here's a caveat. We're just going to forget about this whole sin conversation or whatever. You know, I, again, I get very easily distracted by (laughs) dovetail thoughts of (laughs) bad theology. Um, But yeah, I think boundary work is so hard. It's so scary. And we don't realize that we need it until we're driving the car and the brakes have been cut. Like, Oh my God, we never figured out how Mm -hmm. to stop this. We just said Mm -hmm. yes and put things in motion instead of realizing what's the out, what's the end game. And I know it sounds kind of cynical and like controlling to say that, but it's the opposite. It allows us to remain in our own power without trying Mm -hmm. to overpower the other person. Because when there's a power dichotomy or an imbalance, then one person has more and then the disempowered party feels like they have to push back harder just to be heard, Mm -hmm. which we're witnessing right now in culture, right? When you feel disempowered, you get louder and louder, and that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the right way forward. Maybe it's the power, the party in power, or with more authority, recognizing and finding some humility and identifying, whoa, this is imbalanced. How do I rectify this? So that there are healthy back and forth. There is a healthy balance, and and there are boundaries that we can honor and respect. It's like my coworker who says, wow, that's your boundary. My boundary is if I don't do it now, I won't do it at all. I'm like, cool. Know, Mm -hmm. Know thyself.
0: Brilliant. right? yeah boundaries are i mean just healthy for you know yourself and for the person you're interacting with because it's like oh if i don't have boundaries then um when situations happen i I don't already have a clear sense of who i am and you know what my boundaries are then it's easy to feel um you know defensive and um resentful and then passive aggressive and not um communicating And then it causes issues with them because they're like, "Yo, oh, you didn't say this was your boundary and it caused all kinds of issues. But when you know yourself clearly, that helps other people see yeah. who you are clearly and treat you accordingly.
1: I think we end up having a lot of people who are like, Ugh, that's nice. So you've always been someone that's generous, but suddenly you're reading this new book and you're not going to have money when I need it, like, or whatever, you know, like that embittered, how dare you have a boundary with me, the person that's offended, Um, Mm -hmm. that person was going to be offended eventually. And it just Mm -hmm. happened sooner because you said you can't take advantage of me anymore. This is actually, you know, we treat people the way we want to be treated. We teach people to Mm -hmm. treat us the way we want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we teach them that they were easy marks, they're not, maybe they're not even trying to take advantage. They're just used to us being a resource and Mm -hmm. we remove ourselves as a resource from whatever that looks like, emotional, physical, mental, monetary support. Um, we get, we we can vilify ourselves and the narrative would be either we're a good guy or a bad guy. Either we Mm -hmm. are a villain in their story or we're an enabler in their story. And and there's lots of, there's always going to be caveats to that because there's always context that is crucial. Mm -hmm. But I think again with like, especially if you're supporting someone who's grieving, setting your boundaries right out front. Hey, I'm not able to provide a meal once a week, but I am able to come over and clean your floors. Mm-hmm. I'm not available to hang out and take care of your children for the day, but I am available to take you all out for dinner tomorrow night or to send you a dinner cart or like whatever. Um, just being clear about what you have capacity to offer. And as a griever, telling people what you have capacity to do or not do, what you have capacity to receive or not receive. These boundaries are just their kindness. They're allowing us to mm-hmm. know where we stand with people instead of that weird, are we friends? Are they not? Are they mad at me? <laughs> are you mad at me? Is this about <laughs> me? It's not, mm-hmm. but because we've never had a healthy relationship, we don't know if it's about you or about them or about nothing at all and unrelated.
0: Mm-hmm. But Yeah, that's good.
1: Well, I can end it on this. Um, I think the most important thing to remember for people who are in the faith context somehow and they are grieving or they are witnessing someone grieving in their community and they're not sure what to do. So I think if that's you, if you're finding yourself feel like, Oh my gosh, I'm grieving and nobody understands me and nobody knows what to do with me. And um, that's okay. Do you know what to do with yourself? Hmm. Like, what do you want? Who are you right now? And if you don't know those answers, that's okay too. Observe that you don't know those answers. Observe that you are in your context and you exist. And right now in this moment, taking three seconds to pause and to still your mind and to still your heart, to still your body and to exhale and give yourself a moment to pause. Because the reality is if people don't know how to help you, you don't know how to help yourself either. Because if you did, you might've communicated it. I didn't. I didn't know at all. I knew that I wasn't doing the right things. I knew that what I had wasn't working. But it wasn't until I slowed down to ask some questions of myself. Well, I don't know if this is working, but what do I want? How do I want to feel? We always say we want to feel better. What if we just want to feel differently? What if it's not better or worse? Again, what if it's not good or bad? What if it's just true? It's just real. And well, what do I want my reality to be becomes the question. And that allows us to identify, oh, wow, that person is not really the friend I want in my life right now because they have a lot of need for me to serve, for me to show up, for me to do things for them, but they've never asked how they can come alongside me. It's no shade on that person. It's just not the right season for that relationship. Or maybe it's a, whoa, I've outgrown that relationship. This is going to suck because there's another secondary loss. Mm -hmm. Insight we start asking some hard questions, but we were already gonna be uncomfortable in asking hard questions. They were just gonna be different questions. So I'm a big fan of like, hey, disrupt your whole life, ask some hard questions and see what shakes out. Because if there is something I believe about understanding of God, it's that you won't be left isolated in your confusion. You won't be left, you won't be given answers necessarily. (laughs) Those Mm -hmm. are for you to uncover. These answers are Mm -hmm. things that we pursue on our own and in the context of our lives and our understanding, but we won't be remaining at this eye of the storm without something, someone to hold on to or to ground to, some understanding to ground into, to find, you know, just a starting point.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I don't think nothing is wasted. Um, God is always working good through everything, and we can always learn and grow through through it all. So, mm. yeah. I, uh, I appreciate, um, your, your wisdom and, um, your friendship and all the ways you've helped me. And I think you really, you know, um, uh, as best, best we can understand grief well and how to help others, um, empower them to, to find those, f- find those answers within themselves and, and do the yeah. healing work. Yeah.
1: You're welcome. And it's always so lovely to talk with you, Kendall. So I'm so glad you started this podcast.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming on. Yeah.